throughout the Bible, we see people entering into what are called covenants. A covenant is simply an agreement. It's a contract. It's a pact. For example, we see people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are the patriarchs of Israel, entering into covenants. Let me give you an example. Genesis 21, 27 says this. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. So when we sign contracts today, we are essentially entering into a modern-day type of covenant. And some of the covenants we enter into are good. Some of them we sign contracts and we go, that's not such a good contract, and we regret it later. But you know and have the experience of entering into contracts. Now, where things get really interesting is that we see in the Bible God entering into covenants or uh, pacts with people, at diff different covenants at different times with different people for different reasons. Let me give you a few examples. We see God entering into a covenant with Noah. And this is known as the Noahic covenant, the Noahic covenant. And in this covenant, God promises not to flood the earth anymore. So listen to this. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. That includes us. I have set my bow or my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Theological question. It's a tough one. Has God ever completely flooded the earth since this first time? No, he's a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. This is a covenant that God made, and lo and behold, here we are thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, and guess what? The earth has never been completely flooded. God has fulfilled this covenant, and he will continue to fulfill it. We never have to worry about it. Again, this is known as the Noahic covenant. We also see God making a covenant with Abraham in which he promises to bless Abraham and through Abraham being blessing to the nation. By the way, all of these covenants, the Noahic covenant is I'm going to, the, the, the covenant I'm making with you, Noah, is going to be a covenant that's going to be a blessing to the nations, to the whole world. I'm never going to destroy the earth again by the floodwaters. Same with the Abrahamic covenant. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. And this is known as the Abrahamic covenant. So listen to this covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you, make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. When God makes a covenant, he not only fulfills it, but it just blesses everybody. Now, not to be outdone, one last example. We see God making a covenant with David in which he promises to put one of David's descendants on the throne forever. Can you guess who that is? Right. This is known as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant. Listen to this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, the reason I tell you about covenants and God entering into covenants is because one of the covenants that God entered into, one of the most significant ones in the Old Testament, is what we know as the Mosaic Covenant. And can you guess who it was made with? No, Jacob, not Moses. No, I'm just kidding. It was Moses. If you're worried, it was Moses. It really was. Don't worry. 
I know you're all, you, in failsafe, just say Jesus, right? <clears throat> but when we're talking about this, it's the Mosaic Covenant. And he made it with Moses. And he made it with Moses at Mount Sinai when he, God took the Ten Commandments or his law and wrote it upon tablets of stone. And he gave it to Moses to give to the people. And we read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now, what's interesting is a lot of people think when they think Old Covenant, this is what we know as the Old Covenant, they think the Old Covenant incorporates the entirety of the Old Testament. The Old Covenant specifically is this covenant right here. When theologians or pastors talk about the Old Covenant, we're talking about the covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai, where he took the law and he wrote it on tablets of stone, and he says, you as a people need to obey this. Now, in this covenant, God also instituted a priesthood, animal sacrifices, and instructions on how to properly worship God. But as you know, if you know anything about the Bible, then you know what I'm about to say. Though God was completely faithful to Israel, were they faithful to him? No way. No way. The people were often, often disobedient. The priests were continually corrupt, and God's name was blasphemed as a result. So here's the kicker. God, and I mean in his absolute abundant grace, foretells of a day when he will establish a new covenant with the nation of Israel, which will be radically different and infinitely better than the covenant that he established at Mount Sinai, what we know as the old covenant. So church, it is my honor to take us to the word of God today. Hear the new covenant foretold through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, and a faithful one at that. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Amen. Church, hear the word of God today. The prophecy of the new covenant through the lips of Jeremiah. By the way, Jeremiah, do you, know, do you know what he was called? He was called the weeping prophet. And he was called the weeping prophet because he was there and witnessed the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the, Babylonia, or, uh, the Babylonians. Isn't it, isn't it ironic that the one who's known as the weeping prophet is given perhaps one of the most encouraging prophecies in all the Bible? The promise of a new covenant. A new covenant that is infinitely better than the old covenant. And of course, we see this covenant finding its fulfillment in that baby born in a manger. Church, again, hear the word of God, the fulfillment of the prophecy found in Jeremiah through the lips of Jesus now. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat 
and eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Amen. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you three key reasons that the new covenant is infinitely better than the old covenant and one huge way this should impact your life. So are you ready? Here we go. The first reason the new covenant is better than the old covenant is that it is built on a better sacrifice. So in the old, under the old covenant, once a year on the day of atonement, which we know as Yom Kippur, the high priest would offer animal sacrifices on behalf of himself and of the people. There's just one huge problem. The animals that were being offered could not remove the sins of the people. Listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the sacrifices being offered by the high priests under the old covenant were actually an annual reminder of all the mistakes, all the sins that you had committed that year. It's kind of like having a friend that has no boundaries and they are willing to tell you all the mistakes you make when you make them, right? Sometimes that's your spouse, right? But imagine having a friend and they go, hey, you know, let me just remind you of all the mistakes that you've made. This is what the old covenant did. This is what the law did and the animal sacrifices did. It was a simple reminder because these animals cannot fully take away my sin. Now, God commanded these sacrifices and he accepted them in the sense that he overlooked their sins, but they were still there. He overlooked them because he knew that one day he was going to send a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish that would take away the sins of the world. But the people under the old covenant, the people under the old covenant were only reminded every year of the sins that they had committed. And this is where things get great because Jesus serves as that perfect sacrificial lamb whose blood is sufficient to take away the sins of the world. This is exactly why we see John the Baptist saying this. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold the lamb of God, and everybody say it with me, who takes away the sins of the world. Not surprisingly, we see Peter saying the exact same thing. First Peter 1, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the new covenant is better than the old covenant because it is founded on a better sacrifice. As a matter of fact, it's founded on a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice takes away our sins once and for all. Amen? Whew, that's great news. It is taken away my sins once and for all. 
And I no longer have to have a guilty conscience. Now, the second reason the new covenant is better than the old covenant is that it is mediated by a better high priest. So the priests who served under the old covenant went before God on behalf of the people. That's what priests do. Just one problem, a huge problem. They themselves were weak, sinful, flawed men. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews contrasts the priests under the old covenant with our great high priest under the new covenant. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. It's a bad thing about being a priest under the old covenant. You died. But he holds a priesthood permanently. Why? Because he was crucified and buried. But this priest is different than the others. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Wow. Incredible. Not only is Jesus the better sacrifice, he's the better high priest. Incredible. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better high priest. He is the eternal, the eternal high priest who is able to save all those who trust in him precisely because he lives and he lives to make intercession for you and me. That means when you blow it, and you're gonna, some of us are going to blow it today. Some of you already blew it on the way to church today. Right? Some of you blew it before you left the house today. Let's just be honest, okay? The good news is, is you have somebody, a great high priest that is your advocate before the Father. Dr. John MacArthur says it this way. Constantly, eternally, perpetually, Jesus Christ intercedes for us before his Father. Whenever we sin, he says to the Father, put that on my account. My sacrifice is already paid for it. And through Jesus Christ, we are able, as it says in Jude 24, to stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Amen? Amen. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. So the new covenant is better than the old covenant first because it is founded on a better sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is mediated by a better high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, the third reason is this. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because it is built on better promises. Listen to what Hebrews says. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. And then it says this, since it is enacted on better promises. And one of the great promises of the new covenant is one that we already read about. Let me reread it for you. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The prophet Ezekiel said it this way, same thing, just slightly different. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all of my rules. Amen? That's what I call a good promise. In the new covenant, God promises to work a miracle in the hearts of fallen sinful men and women. And here's the promise. I'm going to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a brand new heart. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were in the old covenant in an old Testament, and you heard that God is going to one day take out your heart, the heart that you currently have and give you a brand new heart, a heart of flesh, he's going to remove your heart of stone. Would you be excited? Absolutely. Praise God for this. And this is exactly what he promises. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to fill us with his spirit. And he's going to enable us to walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. By the way, what's the significance of the virgin birth? Well, there's many, there's many reasons why the virgin birth is significant. But let me give you one reason this, the virgin birth is significant. Because it is proof positive that the birth of Christ was a supernatural event. It was a supernatural birth. But guess what? happens when God takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. It's called the new birth. You're born again. It's a supernatural birth. We see in the birth of Christ what God eventually does in us. He raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life, and it is by his grace. It is a supernatural act. That is what I would call one heck of a promise, and we see this being fulfilled all throughout the New Testament. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, say it with me, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but say it with me, but Christ who lives in me. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will put my spirit within you. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I will work in you to obey my rules and my laws. So these are just three of the reasons the old covenant, the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. It's built on better sacrifices, it has a better high priest, and it has better promises. Infinitely better. Now, with that being said, let me give you one huge way this should impact your life today. Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So remember earlier how I talked about the sacrifices under the old covenant were simply an annual reminder of your sin? That's what it says. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. We have to offer them every year because they don't totally take away sins. So every year we're going to have to offer on the Day of Atonement animal sacrifices. And it just reminds me how sinful I am. Thanks for the reminder. Right? Thanks for the reminder. As such, those living under the old covenant could really never escape a guilty conscience. But folks, those of us living under the new covenant have been set free from a conscience that continually condemns us. Or at least we should. Or at least we should. The fact is, there are a lot of Christians who live daily 
with a guilty conscience about past mistakes and failures. I told you that I got saved in 1987 and I was saved. God literally took out my heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, but I was young and I hadn't been fully discipled. I was just being discipled. I was growing in my faith. But the enemy accused me and brought the skeletons out of my closet that I had committed in the past. And I began to live with this guilt about things that I had done in the past. And it was misery. It was misery. I remember I called my mom and I said, Mom, if this is what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. I mean, I love the Lord, don't get me wrong, but I just, I feel so guilty about what I had done in the past. By the way, you want a great definition of misery? Misery is when you have a conscience held captive by false guilt. That's misery. I once read that if psychologists and counselors could convince their clients that they were forgiven, most psychological problems of their clients would be, would disappear overnight. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Our conscience is a good thing. And it is something that the Holy Spirit certainly uses to convict us and to protect us and to guide us. As believers, we obviously want to maintain a sensitive conscience. The Bible talks about the dangers of having a seared conscience. We want to maintain a sensitive conscience. As a matter of fact, that was the aim of the Apostle Paul. So I take pains, great pains, to have a clear conscience towards both God and men. In other words, when I stumble and fall, I'm quick to confess. I want to keep the account short. But the one thing that you will notice about the Apostle Paul is that he didn't let past sins that had been confessed and dealt with to weigh him down any further. And let's not forget, his past was checkered. This was a murderer of Christians. Paul had a ton of blood on his hand. Let me ask you a question. How does a person who once murdered Christians become perhaps the greatest pastor and missionary the world has ever seen? The answer is simple. As someone under the new covenant, Paul had his heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Period. End of sentence. Amen? Amen. Satan could accuse him all he wanted. Satan could rattle the skeletons in the closet and say, hey, Paul, look. Paul said, no, 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 no. I'm under the new covenant. It's got a better sacrifice mediated by a better high priest, built on better promises. I'm fully forgiven. The law is written on my heart. I'm filled with the spirit of God and I'm a child of God forever. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is who I am. And I will not let what was done in the past and been taken care of by the blood of Christ haunt me today. Haunt me today. Let's not forget um, that again, Paul was a, a murderer. Peter. What about Peter? It's one thing to murder people, but if there was, you think, well, what's worse than murder? The only thing that I can think of worse than murder is what? Denying Christ. Not once, not twice, three times to his face. How does a person who denied Christ three times go on to live the life that he lived and have the impact he has? have? The answer is simple. Peter, as someone living under the new covenant, he had his heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. Here is the point. If you get nothing from my message, get this. If these men who committed really egregious sins could be set free from guilt, a guilty conscience, and become amazing first century ambassadors for Christ, then we can too. But we have to live as new covenant believers. We have to live as if the promises that are told to us in the, new test, in the new covenant actually are ours. Do you want a great promise that comes with the new covenant? Here it is. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from, say it with me, all unrighteousness. When we confess it, it's forgiven. The definition, definition of misery is when we live with false guilt, when we let Satan rattle the skeletons in the closet and we start looking at the skeletons in the closet and we go, oh my goodness, there they are. No, there they are and they're forgiven. And I'm not gonna let what has been dealt with by the blood of Christ affect me today. I am going to be somebody who lives fully forgiven. Listen, if you're here today and you've been struggling with false guilt, you're in good company. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he grew up, in the, he, grew up he became a Catholic monk, monk. Before he did his first mass, he was terrified to do the first mass because of the implications. He said, I'm a sinner. I'm going to officiate the Eucharist and communion? It's impossible. And he was constantly plagued with guilt about things he had done and his sins. And it wasn't until he read the book of Romans and he heard that there is a righteousness from God through faith for all who believe. And he said, oh my goodness, the righteousness I need, there is a righteousness from God through faith to all he believes. And he goes, I don't have a righteousness of my own. It's a free gift from God. I just need to believe. This is the promise of the New Testament, that when we confess our sins, we're not only fully forgiven, okay? It's not just that your account, your, that, that you owe God a debt and you're brought back to zero. If the debt, you know, you, you sin and you go, well, I'm forgiven, so now, now I'm, no. It's his righteousness covers you. So you go from, for, for example, a million dollars in debt your debt is not only wiped out, your account is credited a million dollars. That's the righteousness of Christ, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Not only are you forgiven of your sins, but his righteousness covers you. And I do this all the time. This is me. I'm a sinner. This is Christ. He's perfectly righteous. What does Romans 8, 1 say? There is no condemnation, none for those that are in Christ Jesus, those that are in Christ Jesus. So what does Bill do? He runs to Christ and puts himself in Christ Jesus. This is Christ. This is me. I'm in Christ. Who do you see now? You see Bill covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's not a righteousness of my own. I don't have any but it is a righteousness that is given to me by the grace of God so that when I stand before God on judgment day, I stand righteous, not because I have any righteousness in and of my own, but because his righteousness, the righteousness of his son covers me. False guilt is an absolute killer for Christians. It messed me up for a couple of years as, as a young Christian. It messed up Martin Luther. And it messes up a lot of people even to this day. Let me conclude by reading an Old Testament verse that has radical new covenant implications. Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. By the way, you know what the very next verse says? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You know what's interesting? Is if you head north, you eventually reach the North Pole. And then you start heading south. And if you go south, you eventually reach the South Pole, and you eventually start going north. But if you go east, when do you ever start going west? You don't. And when you go west, when do you ever start going east? You don't. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is God's way, this verse right here, 
of saying to each of us, stop being held captive by your past mistakes and failures. That baby born in the manger came so that we could be set free from a conscience that falsely condemns us. Amen? It's one of the greatest promises of the New Testament. If you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, know this. There's no sin or amount of sins that you've ever committed that he won't forgive you. If you come to him with a repentant heart and trust in him, he will receive you. And if you're here today and you're already a believer, but you've been struggling with some things that you've done in your past, maybe it's one thing or maybe it's many things, let today be the day that you're set free. Let today be the day that you start living as a new covenant believer. You're not an old covenant believer. You've been set free from a guilty conscience. So I start, I finish with a question or really a challenge. Let today be the day that you stop living with false guilt. Amen. 